Well, the first thing that I want to do, get that out of the way, is make commendation to Matt. Over the course of a whole lot of years now, I've known some preachers who were very, very jealous of their pulpit and allowed guest preachers to, uh, to preach in their stead only very, very reluctantly. And uh, Matt has not been like that. He has been eager to allow other people to, uh, to preach. And um, so I want to thank you, Matt, for the opportunity to preach one of my favorite sermons and for your attitude about this. There, preachers say, this is my pulpit. Well, it isn't. But that shows sometimes the mentality that we get. And um, so that's, uh, I, I just wanted to say thank you. The other thing that I want to say about this sermon is, and this is kind of in the spirit of full disclosure, is that I preached something of this sermon uh, once before with, uh, from this, to this congregation. Um, but it was 12 years ago. 2011, and um, so there, there are a bunch of you who weren't here in 2011, and the other part of that is that you've, since then, you've heard hundreds of sermons, so if you were here in 2011, it would be, it would border on the miraculous if you remembered that sermon anyway. So I, I'm not terribly worried about that, and besides that, I've try to upgrade this thing a little bit and work on it, and uh, so we're going uh, to preach. If you have your Bible, and if you are able to stand, I would invite you to do so. Stand as we read God's Word, this text from Ephesians chapter 2, the first 10 verses. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. But God who is rich in mercy. Out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. Please be seated.
but God. There's a whole philosophy of life in that phrase, a complete approach to how to look at life. But this single adversative syllable challenges a whole trend of contemporary thought. Combined with the name of the all-wise, almighty God, who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, this phrase challenges a basic assumption of our time. The assumption of materialism, determinism, fatalism, blind, omnipotent faith, karma. This declaration, but God, challenges the worldview that the, that the universe is a closed system. The premise of such a system is, is that God doesn't exist, that there is no God, and even if he did exist, he doesn't have anything to do with our world. The world is a closed system. What you see is all there is. And so the evolutionist and the materialist consider the world and all that we see to be determined by self-acting laws of chance. The psychologist regards the soul as something merely human, a closed sphere to be dissected and analyzed and labeled and nothing more. The psychiatrist has classified character merely as a balance of chemicals. History is considered to be a merely closed series of cause and effect, action provoking inevitable reaction, and the pendulum swinging mindlessly and purposelessly on its own. And for many people in the 21st century, that is a most agreeable position because it does have some advantages. For it is, in part, a gesture of defiance against moral order and moral responsibility. For after all, if we're just the victims of blind forces, then continue being victims. And let the government pay for it, but that's a different issue. It's also, in part, an excuse for despair. If life is out of our control, then we can't do anything about it anyway, so we can merely retreat into our pessimism or perhaps into our addictions. It's also in part a shield for selfishness and for not caring. After all, if things are going to happen, they're going to happen. So why try to change anything? And then, too, in part, it's an alibi for failure. Things are just going to happen. They're not going to be my fault. But mostly, mostly, it's an escape from virtue and ethics and righteousness. For if what we see is all there is, and that's what Carl Sagan declared on the old TV program Cosmos, if what we see is all there is, then we have eliminated God. And if God is out of the picture, then I can write my own rules for myself. I become God. But the Christian cries out, but God. The world is not a closed system. 
Neither our souls, nor our minds, nor history, nor the future is closed to God. There are such things as morality and freedom and originality and initiative and creativity. Relationships and responsibility are at the heart of things. But God means that anything can happen. And it has. For we see a world confused and doomed without God's intervention. But then God breaks in. This truth lies behind everything that scripture has to tell us. There are so many illustrations of God's intervention recorded in scripture. We could, we could practically open our Bibles at random and see illustrations of this truth. So I invite us to look at a couple of places. We see God at work in Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 and 2. Darkness covered the earth. Thick darkness covered the peoples. A mighty pagan empire held the known world in bondage. And that, empire, that pagan empire seemed invulnerable. It was a lewd empire, violent, luxurious, cruel, heathen. Its very religion was degrading and corrupt. And Israel was caught in the tentacles of this kingdom, Persia. What hope was there for deliverance? Israel was already in bondage. From where could come freedom and hope and morality and justice? Everything was dark. God had spoken earlier in Isaiah 40, telling of Israel's eventual restoration. The prophet Isaiah had cried out, Comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And the passage in Isaiah 60 is a fulfillment of the passage in Isaiah 40. <clears throat> out of their slavery would come freedom. God's punishment and discipline would come to an end. Arise, shine, for your light has come. That's what the prophet declared in Isaiah 61 and 2. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you, for darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will appeal, will, will appear over you. Did you get the phrase? What? The Lord, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will appear over you. Oh, it's a foolish thing to leave God out of our reckoning. But God. Or consider Galatians 4. Paul saw, saw the world in still darker terms as being in bondage and slavery to the spirit world of evil. He understood the world to be dominated by the demonic forces of ignorance and corruption and division and rebellion and sin. He saw the world being enslaved to the elemental spirits of the universe, as he wrote in Galatians 4.3. The world stood helpless and doomed because it was by choice alienated from God. 
but then God stepped in. As Paul wrote in verse 4 of Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth the Son. When things looked their worst, when the world looked like it was at the end of its tether spiritually, God acted. He sent forth his Son to redeem. God had broken into history once again. The world looked doomed. God. The world looked doomed again when that son was crucified. It seemed that the Satan had won. That holy, righteous son of God who had arrived in the fullness of time had been destroyed. There he was for everyone to see. Jesus lifted up on a cross, bleeding dying, dead. It seemed that selfishness and arrogance were indeed the winners after all. But God, but God, as Peter declared when he spoke to Cornelius in Acts 10, we are witnesses to all that is that Jesus did, both in Judea and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day. But God raised him up. Here again was God at work in his world, doing very surprising things, working for the benefit of his tainted creation. But God, here was the ultimate display of but God. Here is God involved in his world first by sending his son and then raising him from the dead, thereby vindicating the work that he had sent Jesus to do. Look at Jesus and see but God. It's been more than 30 years since the Berlin Wall was destroyed and the Iron Curtain fell in Eastern Europe. The hollowness and the decadence of communism was shown for what it was. Those of us who were alive then, who had lived through the Cold War, were, were glad that it was over, at least that part of it. But it didn't happen just because Ronald Reagan told Mikhail Gorbachev to take that wall down. It was also initiated and accompanied by the church, faithfully, peacefully, but forcefully proclaiming the kingship of Jesus in Poland, in Romania, Czechoslovakia, the Soviet Union. In his book, Being the Body, Chuck Colson related a story about the revolution in Eastern Europe brought about by the church, by God breaking into history. It was just before Christmas, 1989, in Timio Azra, Romania. A huge gathering in the square, some 200,000 people. The dictator, Nicolae Ceausescu, had just been deposed. 
after several speeches had been made, the people, the crowd, asked for a pastor to speak to them. I'm Pastor Peter Deglusku from the First Baptist Church, Timio Azra, he began as he took the microphone. And I've come to speak to you in the name of God as you wanted. For almost 45 years, my age, unfortunately, we have been told there is no God. The communists wanted to take God away from our hearts, from our minds, from our families, from our schools. I want to speak to you in the name of this God. From the balcony from which he spoke, Pastor Deglusku could see thousands of upturned faces, and he could hear the shouts of, ho of voices hoarse with tears. God exists, they shouted. There is a God, there is a God. God is with us. Deglusku continued, the communists tried to kill me a few times, but I am still alive because God protected me. And I have asked the government to bring Pastor Tokes back to Timio Azra. We must have religious freedom in Romania. Cheers interrupted him periodically, of course, as he continued for a few more moments, and then he asked the people to pray with him. This is an historic moment, he said. Let us turn our hearts to God. Please follow me in the Lord's Prayer. He had not asked the people to kneel But as he looked out, he saw a sight that he would never forget. On this quiet square where people had been forced to sing the praises of Ceausescu for years, before this balcony that had been an altar to the communist regime, now as far as he could see, a tidal wave of people knelt on the pavement and sentence by sentence, with one voice, they thundered out the ancient prayer, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But God, Wang Yi is the leader in the early reign covenant church, a house church in Chengdu, China. One day in December of 2018, he opened the door of the church to face a crowd of officers who arrested him and his wife, and then tracked down and arrested the entirety of early reign's leadership structure and dismantled it. Wang Yi is now serving a nine-year prison sentence for refusing to comply with the People's Republic of China's regulations regarding church registration. In an article that was able to be taken out of China recently, Yang, Wang Yi wrote, as a house church pastor, I thank and praise God Almighty for all persecution and restrictions suffered by the church. He trains and purifies his church and his children in China. Moreover, he gives us the most unmerited blessing of suffering for righteousness' sake. And here he cited 1 Peter 3.14. In a larger sense, he went on, and even on a personal level, 
I actually prefer for persecution to continue. Because I am prepared to endure more protracted church-state conflicts. This would be incomparably better for our spiritual life and for our final hope. Is it even possible to contemplate saying such a thing, having such faith and such an attitude, let alone write it for publication? Unless God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is there with him in his cell and ultimately in charge. But God. And what God has done on a large scale, he continues to do on a small and more personal scale as well. For our lives become corrupt, corrupted, sinful, lost without God, and God still seeks us. He still breaks in. That's the burden of Paul's writing in our text in Ephesians 2. Paul recalled the character of the Ephesians. They were citizens of a city of cultured sin. There was much beauty in the city of Ephesus. It could be seen in their pagan temples and in their art. But it was all in the service of sensuality. Paul wrote rather frankly to the members of the church there, reminding them that you were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived. They had walked in the course of this world, been subject to the demonic evil. They had been possessed by the spirit of disobedience. They had lived for the satisfaction of the flesh, pursuing the lusts of body and mind, victims of an heredity of idol worship. And in such a condition, Paul concluded that they were destined only to be separated eternally from God. But that wasn't the whole story. In verse 4, Paul wrote, But God, who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with him and raised us up with him. God broke in. Their former condition was not a barrier to God, and it did not prohibit him from acting on their behalf in Christ and calling them to himself. But God. And what Paul wrote in Ephesians could have just have been easily said of himself as well. In 1 Corinthians 1.23, Paul called gospel, the gospel a stumbling block to Jews, and it certainly was for him. The fulfillment of God's covenant promises was not ever envisioned by the Jews to consist of a crucified Messiah. The Messiah was understood to be victorious, and even if he had been raised from the dead, as these Christians claimed, which was doubtful at best, the fact that Jesus had been destroyed by the Romans by being publicly and humiliatingly crucified had sealed the deal for Paul as far as he was concerned. A crucified Messiah was a scandal, and that was it. So in his violent zeal, Paul went after these Christians, most likely all of them of Jewish background. Luke tells us in Acts 8.3, but Saul, Paul's former name, 
Saul laid waste the church and entered house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. It even got to the point Paul received authorization to travel to Damascus in Syria to bring back some of those Christians for trial. But God, God knew that Paul's zeal, rightly directed, would be just what was needed to establish a foothold for the kingdom throughout the Roman Empire. And so Jesus appeared to Paul on that road to Damascus. Jesus was alive. That was the whole point of his appearing. Jesus was alive. What those Christians had been saying all along was true. And the proof was in this risen Jesus whom Paul encountered on that road. And Paul became an apostle and an ambassador for the church, for Christ, and the author of almost half of our New Testament. But God. In a journal article, John Ortberg told about Harold. Harold had marital problems, a history of substance abuse and chronic unemployment. And that combination finally drove him to church. The first week he sat in the back row. He had grown up under another religious tradition long since discarded and the cross in front of the auditorium bothered him. But he came back the next week. And this time he brought a Bible. <clears throat> and then he started rising at 4 a.m. to read his Bible. In a few months, he committed his life to Christ, was baptized, joined a small group, and got involved in a ministry that the church was engaged in. And Ortberg wrote, Harold's life changed so abruptly, I wondered if it would stick. But now, several years later, according to his wife, his children, his friends, and Harold himself, he is a new man. As personal as Paul was in our text in Ephesians 2, he was even more pointed when he wrote Corinthians. In verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 6, he wrote, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, sodomites, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, robbers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. That's some nasty list, isn't it? As if Paul had been reading... People Magazine and the National Enquirer at the checkout stand. Corinth was known for its blatant sin. It was, after all, a seaport city. It was commercial. It was cosmopolitan. It was corrupt right down to the core. But Paul went on in verse 11. And this is what some of you used to be. No punches pulled here. Not exactly great public relations here, Paul, reminding the Corinthians about their former lives, but it seems to me that he needed to do that to set up the contrast between then and now, and he needed to get to the good news. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. But God, yes, you Corinthians were a wicked bunch. You were pagan, corrupt, fit only for destruction. But God, the gospel came to Corinth. 
Some of those very same people believed that gospel and turned to God, and God welcomed them. He cleansed their lives, redeemed them, declaring them righteous by the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But God, in his book, The Trivialization of God, Donald McCullough told of a sermon that he preached one Sunday on Romans 5 speaking how Christ fundamentally altered the human condition. His point was that while all had been marked by Adam's disobedience, now all have been remarked by the grace of Christ's obedience. This means, he said, that along with Paul, we can regard no one from a human point of view. Christ has been crucified and raised, even for those people we don't much like. And to illustrate that, he gave a list of some people for whom Christ died. Illegal immigrants, the homeless, homosexuals, and so on. Nothing profound in my view, he wrote. Certainly nothing prophetic. But the next day, however, he was chatting with one of his elders, and the man said to him, Don, about yesterday's sermon, I hated it. McCullough wrote, coming from a man for whom I have deep affection, this hurt. I hated it, he repeated in case I missed it the first time. That part about homosexuals, I can't stand them. His voice was getting loud, very loud. People in offices down the hall could hear us. I can't stand them, and I hated your sermon. There was nothing but silence for a few seconds. And then he said in a soft voice, but don't stop preaching the word because I need it. And McCullough concluded the story by writing a few weeks after that following a worship service. I noticed him speaking with two members of the congregation, a father and his gay son, who was battling AIDS. I wondered what the elder might say. Then I saw him reach out and put his arms around his brothers in Christ, and they bowed their heads in prayer. The word was working. A man was being changed. God. After the rich young man turned away from following Jesus, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were truly astounded at that statement because they considered wealth as a sign of God's approval and God's favor. And so they asked Jesus, well then, who can be saved? And Jesus responded by saying, for mortals it is impossible, but for God all things are possible. But for God all things are possible. No matter the circumstances, 
no matter the situation, no matter its depth, breadth, height, 